And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, today's episode is one I've been wanting to do for a long time, but I couldn't find the right person to kind of give me all the inside information on bonsai trees. I've been kind of obsessed with these for a long time. Uh, I'm going to tell you exactly when, since you asked. It was the original Karate Kid movie, not this crappy one with Jaden Smith, but the original one with Ralph Macchio, and what better guy to play very un-macho man, but a guy whose last name is Macchio. He stumbles upon Mr. Miyagi, and for those familiar with the movie, this needs no introduction, but I'm going to explain it to those who are unfamiliar. So Ralph Macchio, uh, Daniel LaRusso, stumbles upon Mr. Miyagi in uh, one of the first meetings that they have, and he's clipping a little tree in the back, and, you know, spoiler alert, it turns out to be that that bonsai tree is the symbol that is on um, uh, Daniel's uh, gi at the end of, of the movie. Pivotal point, um, if you haven't seen the movie already, my guess is you're not going to see it, and I'm not ruining anything, you should definitely see the movie. Uh, but that was the first time I was really introduced to the bonsai tree, and at the time, and for years up until very, very recently, and by very recently, I mean weeks ago, I always kind of thought that the bonsai tree was a very specific genus uh, of tree, that it was the bonsai name meant, you know, that was the genus or the species name for the tree. Turns out that's not the case at all. It's bonsai, and we're going to get into what it means uh, and what they do and what makes them special. And it's kind of a rabbit hole you'll fall fall into because these are living works of art, and uh, it, they're, they're incredible. I was I couldn't have been more wrong, which is, um, yeah, I'm okay with that. You know, sometimes you don't get it right, but we're here to learn and I think that this is going to be one of those that you're not going to forget. So let's just pop right into this. I got Ted Matson from the Huntington Library, um, their, their, their botanical garden collection. They have one of the best in the world. Ted, thanks for being on the program today. Uh, my pleasure, Dan. Well, so now let's, before we get going here, let's define bonsai. Bonsai. Am I saying that correctly? It's bonsai. Yes. So the loose definition, from what I understand, is miniature versions of regular-sized trees currently residing in pots instead of a forest where they're naturally found. That's the loose translation of bonsai, right? Yeah, a wordy translation for sure. What would um, be a shorter one? Uh, tree in a pot? Tree in a pot. <laughs> yep, that, that is a literal translation. Um, the modern tr- idea of bonsai is not just any plant in a pot, though. It's uh, a plant that exhibits uh, characteristics of a tree. So you want something with a, a woody trunk, for example. So just about any tree, shrub, or woody herb kind of falls into that. But the element uh, of it growing in a pot is critical. So some species of plants don't like pot growth, so that kind of limits it. And then finally, um, the definition includes the application of some sort of training technique 
um, to make it look old, to make it look uh, like like a, a, a real ancient tree um, or possibly a, a tree at the height of its glory, but some sort of training technique where you're not just taking a stick and throwing it in a pot and saying, oh, there's my bonsai. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what qualifies you as an expert, sir? Oh, gosh. Um a lot of years of experience. Um, I started in uh, the late 70s, discovered it as a hobby. Um, I had teachers who uh, uh, were very good, and uh, when they, I guess when they saw that I had started to grasp things, um, they encouraged me to become a teacher in my own right. Um, I started people seeing my work. I started getting invitations to do programs, uh, demonstrations, lectures, things like that. Um, in the bonsai world, it's really your work um, that that drives your your role. Um, and so, I guess I did good work, and people recognize it. And somehow, I could communicate um, some of the methods and uh, techniques that I used pretty well. So um, the demand got there, and and found myself uh, in front of crowds a lot. So now you, you kind of gained this expertise uh, by working, you know, you kind of took it up as a hobby, you learned it all, but you currently work at the Huntington Gardens, which has one of the, like a world-class bonsai exhibition, don't, don't they? Yes. Um, the Huntington uh, in San Marino, uh, Southern California, we do have one of the oldest uh, and largest bonsai collections uh, in the world. Um, some of our trees uh, in our collection um, date back to um, the 60s and 70s, but the bulk of the collection uh, uh, was developed um, in the 80s when the Huntington partnered with the Golden State Bonsai Federation, uh, an organization made up of clubs in California, to really upgrade um, the collection and make it a, a world-class uh, 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 facility. And um, so through gifts of, of entire collections or gifts of individual trees, um, it's grown to where it amasses about uh, 450 trees right now in, under accession. Uh, too many. Uh, we have a lot of stuff we will be thinning. Our collection probably needs to be between around uh, 250 and maybe 300 trees. Um, and it's, it, it's got some very fine old, old specimens, primarily... Um, uh, California, Mediterranean uh, uh, species, uh, stuff that grows very well in our Southern California climate. Those are the ones you'll be hanging on to. Correct. Um, we've had uh, acquisitions of entire collections where we don't need to save every tree in the gift. Uh, we do have the commitment uh, to save at least one piece from any gift. So if it's <laughs> one tree, uh, we, we will do everything in our power to make sure that one tree uh, is preserved, um, is maintained um, in a style that the, you know, the, the, the donor gave it. In some cases, trees have been given in s such a young state, they have no style. So we actually have the freedom to, uh, as the tree evolves, to apply a contemporary styling or, or, or better styling uh, to them and, and continue to get improvements. But we do have the commitment that, uh, again, if, if a, a descendant of some donor um, comes to the Huntington and says, gosh, could I see uh, my great-grandfather's tree or great-grandmother's tree, um, we can pull it out and say, there you go, um, we're taking care of it. And so um, it's, it's a way of preserving a legacy of the art. So when you, you don't save all of them. So what do you do with the other ones? Do you just turn it into kindling, or how does that, uh, what happens? Can you tell me? Can you yes. reveal your secrets? Um, we actually share them with the bonsai community. Um, they go uh, into our fundraising program 
as material for auction and raffle. So um, our collection sites in California, the Golden State Bonsai Federation sites, each of them have a fundraiser. And uh, a lot, in a lot of cases, uh, the fundraising uh, component is, is uh, donations from, from local members. But we actually have uh, such a large inventory, we're able to cull trees out of our collection and uh, put them in, in auction. Um, some years we've gotten very uh, generous gifts and so we haven't culled as much. Um, some years we uh, don't get as much, so we might cull more trees there. But uh, slowly over time, um, the, the lesser trees in our collection, the duplicates, um, for example, we've got 40-some uh, black pines uh, right now. We don't need 40-some. Uh, but uh, if we had about a nice uh, 15 black pines that were very representative, um, that would be a, a, a beautiful collection of, of, of masterpiece. Japanese black pine. So that's kind of what we're facing is we've got just a lot of repetition of uh, fine quality material, but we just don't need uh, multiples of, of everything. That makes sense. Um, now, you said you got into this hobby uh, when you were a kid, right? Well, some of my interests that I developed as a kid converged in bonsai. Um, as a young kid, I loved sculpting. I played with clay, um, even to the point I thought maybe I'd even become a fine arts major with a sculptural focus. Didn't think it was very practical, ultimately, so we no, didn't pursue really. it. Um, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> but the second factor was um, I grew up in a small farming community uh, in northern North Dakota, and uh, so I was always involved with growing things. Um, and finally, in my little hometown, uh, as remote a place in the country as you could find, a guy came home with a Japanese war bride. And uh, they had kids that I grew up with, and, and in visiting their home, there were just enough artifacts uh, from, from ja Japan that, you know, in this North Dakota town, that was about the most exotic place on the planet that, that you could imagine. And so I guess I got fascinating, fascinated with Japanese uh, arts and culture to some degree. Um, it actually... Uh, was so much so that I did pursue some uh, uh, learning of, of Asian art history in college even. So that drove me a lot. But um, it's funny, it wasn't until after college I was working in a job um, and I was doing uh, some, I was writing, and I, I went into a bookstore one night that had a little coffee shop. And um, as I'm working, lo and behold, I look up on the shelf and here spotlighted was a, a, a bonsai book. And... Uh, it turns out not, not the greatest book, but the picture on the front was a little juniper that was pretty fascinating. And uh, the uh, opening, the preface, uh, talking about how bonsai is sculpture with living material, uh, Japanese cultural art form, and the materials you're working on kind of outlive you by centuries. That just, that statement just grabbed me. And um, uh, I got the book. I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I jumped on a streetcar. I had no car, and I uh, went down to a nursery and found a Japanese quince that was listed in the back of the book, and a little blue pot, and a bag of sand, and a bag of potting soil, and brought it home to my third-floor flat in San Francisco, and on my kitchen table, repotted the tree, and doggone if it didn't bloom, and I was hooked from that point on. Wow. Even to the point in my third-floor flat, I had to... Uh, build a platform between the water closet and the uh, bathroom. There were two windows facing each other, so I put a couple pieces of two by four and 
a sheet of plywood, and that was my first bonsai growing area overlooking this parking lot <laughs> in the heart of San Francisco. That's incredible. So you had immediate success, and that's kind of what brought you in. Uh, yes, that that flowering quince was just an amazing surprise. Um, so much so, I, I wanted to keep it blooming, so I kept picking at the plant. And uh, the, the very first tree I got, there were two trees together in a pot, and I separated them. And the one tree, um, I picked it to death. I wanted it to just keep blooming. Um, the second piece, that was the lesser of the two, I actually held on to that, and I still have some of that uh, um, to this day. But it, uh, it wasn't as interesting to me as the first plant. So um, I did have success, but like all good bonsaius, I, I, I overdid it at the first two, and I lost uh, some of my first plant, just wanting more. So you basically worked them to death. Is that kind of yep. what happens? Yep. Um, in that case, that tree needed to stop blooming. It needed to put leaves on and grow and store energy. And I kept thinking if I kept taking leaves off, I could keep inducing more bloom. And it did work for a bit, but at some point it needed to just have its leaves. And I, I never let it do that. So after a while, it just said, well, heck with you. I'm, I'm, you're making me work too hard. <laughs> it just died. Yep. So were you brought up on charges for that? I mean, for the Bonsai <laughs> Association? You know, I didn't know uh, the, the plant police at that time. So I think <laughs> I slipped under the wire. Well, um, this is, and I think the statute of limitations has run out. So I think you're, you're lucky. Uh, we, all, we all commit that, though. Uh, I never have, killing, sir. Killing I never bonsai. Have. Oh, well, then, see, you're not a serious bonsaiist. <laughs> There's a very Fair famous enough. Japanese master who was asked, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Kobayashi, what does it take to become a great bonsai master? And without missing a beat, he just says, oh, you got to kill a lot of trees. And unfortunately, <laughs> it, it, it does take a few trees to go through before you, you get comfortable with you them. Figure it out. Now, that makes sense. Um, so now you're so you would kind of describe yourself as an artist by nature who kind of got into bonsai to express your art. Uh, that's a great way to put it. Yes, Thank uh, you. I, I think I finally found my medium. Um, the dynamics of uh, working with with uh, trees is, uh, boy, it's psychologically it it's pretty powerful stuff. Um, the idea that you're working with with living uh, entity, you know, a, a living thing. And uh, the responsibility of um, the fact that it, it, it is designed to outlive you by generations. And so, you know, when you're starting to work on a tree, especially if you get the privilege of working on a very old collected specimen, like a, a native juniper, a native pine, something that might already be a couple of centuries old, uh, I'll tell you, it... it um, it's a very powerful relationship you develop with it. It's, it's as much as uh, uh, a relationship as you develop with any pet over the years. It, they, yeah. they become um, very important to you, and you respect that life. Um, every day in bonsai, uh, you kind of witness miracles to some degree. Um, that plant grows. Uh, you water it, even if it droops. Um, you water it, and five, ten minutes later, you watch those leaves start twitching and perking up, and um, you really can see a life force in it. You see an old collected juniper with a dead skeleton, and, and you see that vein of, of tissue just clinging to it, you know, that's been supporting that tree for the last hundred years. Um, that's a very powerful statement, and when you start working on trees, um, you can't help but be, have that in your mind. And so um, uh, you develop almost a reverence for some of your more special trees because of that. Yeah. 
I mean, it sounds it's it's an amazing. When you start, we're gonna get into the philosophy in a second. When you start breaking it down, I mean, you're these are amazing creatures. They really are. Uh, so now let's talk about when the deal happened in the 1980s with the Golden State Bonsai Federation. That kind of made the Huntington Gardens like a world class bonsai uh, exhibit, right? Like- it it did. It had um, it had a world class infrastructure. It had display areas. It had a very beautiful display court in that. But um, the original bonsai collection, uh, through some neglect, through some uh, uh, lack of knowledge about how to care for them, and even some theft over the years, uh, it kind of disappeared. Um, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, you could go there and see a few trees on display. Um, but again, uh, they weren't uh, anything near uh, what, what they should have been. So um, there was a botanic director who came on board, and he recognized that, that there was an asset that uh, really w- was uh, uh, unexploited there. And he, uh, uh, I have to give him a lot of credit to opening up uh, the, to the bonsai community. And in particular, there was one couple here in Southern California, uh, Khan and Kay Komai, uh, uh, Kay's father being one of the pioneers of bonsai. Um, uh, they started talking to the Huntington too and kind of convincing them that, gosh, you know, you've got this great facility. You really need a much better bonsai collection. And uh, so there was kind of a, a, a mutual uh, understanding that uh, this is a great place. Um, this is really a center of, of major bonsai activity, and it really deserves to have a, a much stronger uh, bonsai collection. So um, uh, when it was put together, um, it came together fairly quickly. There was a lot of generosity from the Southern California community, um, uh, especially um, to, to provide some very nice old tree specimens. So uh, to this day, I'd say, especially in terms of uh, collected natives, um, I doubt that there's another collection in the country that has as many uh, collected native species as we do. That's amazing. I mean, that's a pretty significant metric to hold. Yeah, um, you know, we're lucky because uh, uh, we, we, we are in one of uh, very excellent areas for collecting native trees, both uh, junipers and oaks especially. Um, certainly in, in the Rockies, they have other junipers. They have ponderosa pines. Um, there's, there, there's more and more uh, being worked on. But uh, truthfully, this is where it started, uh, the west coast of California with the Japanese community uh, even before World War II. Uh, especially in the Central Valley, there were a lot of uh, uh, the Japanese who were doing bonsai and collecting trees and um, even before the internment camps. Um, So, um, you know, there was a legacy that went back. There's a collection in the Central Valley in the Fresno area now that uh, uh, really highlights a lot of those old pioneers, uh, names you don't really recognize, but again, were very instrumental to the history of the art. So who are some of the people that you learned from? Do you have any mentors that you learned from? Yeah. Um, my first teacher was a gentleman in San Francisco. His name was John Boyce, um, just a hobbyist, but a very experienced hobbyist. And uh, um, uh, probably for the architecture of the clubs up there, uh, gave a lot of people their initial start in bonsai uh, because a lot of the clubs were... Um, controlled by a sensei. When I started, um, you were invited by the sensei to join the club. They did the demos, they did the workshop, uh, they did everything, and you learned that sensei style. Um, I happened to find a club that was a little more open, and uh, so uh, I got exposed to uh, a a little broader uh, range of bonsai. 
when I moved to Los Angeles in 1980 for a career move, I discovered that uh, Southern California was the epicenter of bonsai at the time. There were many clubs. It was all open architecture. You could go to four or five clubs in a month and see the very top American bonsai talent. And, and so the opportunity for learning, too, because many of them offered classes, I got right into things. So um, uh, some of my, my important teachers were uh, Shig Nagatoshi. Um, they, uh, he and uh, his son, Roy Nagatoshi, who's a, a, a popular uh, bonsai teacher on the circuit now, um, they own one of the oldest bonsai nurseries in the country, Fuji Nursery up in Silmar. And that was a wonderful place. You could just walk in empty-handed and say, I want to learn bonsai. And they'd sit you down, and they had everything, plants, tools, supplies. And so uh, Mr. Nagatoshi was, was again, very influential. Um, another teacher of mine was Melba Tucker. Um, in many cases, uh, she's been called the first lady of bonsai. Um, she is one of these... Uh, uh, she was tough but had a heart of gold and uh, also probably responsible for teaching um, a huge, huge number of uh, bonsais in Southern California. Um, she was, uh, again, a great artist um, and also introduced me to the love of stones or suiseki, which is a art related to bonsai. Um, I also studied with a guy named Warren Hill. Um, he was a Southern Californian. He eventually went on to... Uh, be the curator for the National Arboretum. They were having some uh, uh, health issues, and they hired him to uh, restore that collection. Um, Warren was a great researcher, uh, uh, approached uh, bonsai in a very scientific manner. He was the kind of guy, if there was a problem or a question, he would be able to call somebody at UC Davis or, or, and get them involved in a project. Um, then uh, probably my most influential teacher and, uh, and the gentleman most influential uh, on bonsai around the world these days was John Naka. He was a Southern Californian. He's, co he's considered the father of American bonsai, but um, he actually was responsible for introducing uh, bonsai to much of the English-speaking world. Um, in the 1950s, there was a Japanese community here, very closed uh, uh, about the art of bonsai. He was one of uh, a handful of Japanese who said, no, if we want this art to grow, we need to share it with the Caucasian community. And so there was a, a, a break, a big schism. And so for many years in Los Angeles, there was a, a group of, of older Japanese. Uh, they had the Los Angeles Bonsai Club and only spoke Japanese um, and only uh, invited Japanese to participate. But yet John started the California Bonsai Society, which was uh, then open to Caucasians. And he and a group of people started teaching the Caucasians. And because of his... Uh, Boy, just force of personality, he was one of those uh, rare individuals uh, who a people person like you can't believe, uh, never forgot a person's name, would, would years later, having not seen somebody, would remember details of their life. He was a, a, a bigger-than-life uh, kind of a guy, and just his artistry. He was just an incredible artist, and uh, um, because he was so well-respected, again, he, uh, he, he taught bonsai to uh, most of the world, and we were so lucky to have him. But he was very influential uh, teacher for me. Um, again, uh, his artistry, uh, uh, even to this day, his trees have a quality of movement uh, uh, that, that's unmistakable, um, noticeably different than, than other trees.
So, yeah, and so I've always uh, uh, taken advantage when we've had touring masters, uh, again, like the Golden State Bonsai Federation, uh, they, they do conventions, they bring Japanese or European masters over, and I've always been one to uh, take a workshop or learn as much as I can. So um, uh, there's a, a gentleman in this country, his name is Kenji Miyata. He moved here from Japan, classically trained bonsai master. And one of the things he told me once, he said, you know, you're a good teacher, he said, but you can never stop being a student. And so, um, you know, there, even to this day, there are new apprentices, new techniques, new information. Um, this, this art is so dynamic, uh, you can't get entrenched. And uh, I think that was one of the things when I first got involved in it, um, I knew it would be challenging uh, to me till the day I died. I knew I would never be able to fully grasp the, the full breadth and depth of, of learning uh, and inspiration this art, art offers. Um, there's so many sidelights. Um, you know, you, you work on a tree, well, there's certain technical skills you, you learn, and then when you get that tree to a point, now it's time to put it in a pot. So you have to learn about pots. We just had an incredible experience, uh, a guy from Mississippi who came to Southern California. His name is Michael Ryan Bell, who in a very short amount of time has become an expert on Japanese and Chinese pottery and came and gave great lectures. And I learned stuff about pots that I never knew before. Um, so here I've been doing it nearly uh, 40 years and this guy comes through and just got me all excited about uh, pottery and being able to understand chops and stuff. So again, it just uh, there's just no limit to the learning, and that that I knew from the day I started, and I knew it would be uh, something I do till I was totally incapa incapacitated, unable to do it anymore. <laughs> the end of time. Uh, so now let's talk about you gathered all this knowledge from all these masters. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that knowledge. Tell me the process of a bonsai tree. What are you doing when you take a tree in? What's the goal? Ah, well, um, the goal is to really replicate something from nature. Um, while there is uh, an opportunity to stylize trees and take, uh, um, in some case, you can actually make a tree look more like a brushed, uh, brush painting as opposed to a natural tree. But the ultimate goal is we're trying to re recreate something from nature. So, Usually, we're starting with something that has some trunk mass to it. Um, yeah, it can be nursery stock. That's probably the most common material, either typically one-gallon or five-gallon material. But it also can come from urban landscapes. Uh, so urban yamadori, yamadori being the, the word for mountain tree or wild tree, um, we, we collect old specimens from landscapes that already have big, massive trunks and extensive root systems and strength of, of branching, or we collect from the wild. So typically what we're starting with is we're trying to find a, a powerful trunk, something with some, some weight, some dimension to it, because that's where the sense of mass and strength and power in the tree comes in. Um, so if you have a nice fat trunk that, that leads to a, a divided spreading root system where the roots look like fingers gripping onto the ground, right off the bat you have this sense of power and strength that, that a good bonsai will have. So typically what we try and do is when we start off with that base, we then will create the other structures in the tree or modify the other structures in a way to make them look old, to give them character. 
So a lot of times, especially nursery stock, you're dealing with a lot of uh, straight lines that go uh, uh, straight up. They don't taper. Um, so what we do is we might start cutting a trunk off to find a side branch that's a little skinnier. And so we'll start creating taper. We'll start creating a better, a better quality to the line. So the kind of line we look for, we want movement. Um, so there's only one straight line in bonsai, and that's, that's a formal upright trunk. But even the branching, the twigging off of a formal upright has movement. So we look for something with some movement. We look for some movement with a sense of taper. And taper in trees is really interesting because it's a gradual diminishment of, si of, di of diameter that starts at the very base, and it, it just gradually gets smaller and smaller until you reach the apex of the tree or the tip of the branch. Well, one of the ways we create bonsai is we do a trunk chop. We might take a thick, fat trunk, and where we've got a nice side branch coming off, we take the main trunk away, saw it, cut it, seal it up so it, it produces a callus and eventually yields over, but then we might use some wire to bring that side branch up. So now we've created a section that's a little skinnier uh, and maybe a little shorter. So we actually create the taper in the technique of, of, of doing that. Um, trees also grow in rhythmic patterns. They, you know, when a tree wakes up in the spring and, and as it grows through that year, whatever characteristic of growth it puts on that year, it's, it's consistent through that generation. So when you look at an old tree, when you see a trunk forking into branches, forking into smaller branches and so on, what you're actually seeing are generations of rhythmic uh, growth patterns. And so in a bonsai, what we try and do is through pruning and wiring, we try and create a greater number of these growth segments within the framework of the tree. So when you prune a tree, you take foliage away, you take structure away, it actually stimulates the tree to produce more budding. And uh, as more budding is produced and as that's pruned again, it throws more buds out. Well, an interesting phenomenon happens that as a tree produces more growth tips, the relative size of the solar panel, the leaves or the needles, oftentimes can be reduced because now there's more of them. So now they, they, the, the leaves get smaller, the twigs get shorter. So all of a sudden, as you work the tree, you start replacing the coarse, young structures with these more aged, refined, delicate structures. And then that's the process that just takes time. And uh, so there's a saying in bonsai that, that time equals money. If you want to get in and you can go out and purchase a refined old tree that somebody's been working on, wiring, pruning, doing that kind of work for, for a decade or two, or you can take a piece of raw stock and you can start that process by creating a framework and then as you feed and water the tree and it keeps growing, you start building those, those better quality structures that really resemble old trees. But there's, you, can't, you can't trade off. You, you, know, you either find something that's got it or you build it. Um, it, it just doesn't come by itself. Um, the properties of trees growing in nature, they're, they're much too coarse, they're much too vigorous. Um, the proportions, we look in a bonsai, we might be looking to pr produce a trunk with branches, secondary branches, tertiary branches, and twigging and leaves, but maybe we're shooting for a height that's three inches tall instead of 30 feet tall. Well, you really have to uh, pay attention to where you're doing your cutting, what kind of structures you're building to fill uh, a space of three inches and have it resemble or reflect the character that that's something either three feet would would 
express, or better yet, again, something 30 feet tall would express. So, so the main goal, one of the main goals of bonsai is to take something that exists in the wild, like a 30-foot tree, and kind of make it smaller, confine it to a pot, but still reflect the age of the old tree. Yeah, we can't, it's, it's difficult for us to take a 30-foot tall tree. But if we're looking at a 30-foot tall ponderosa, what we can do is we can go and find a 4-foot tall ponderosa that has had snow load and, you know, um, uh, all kinds of stuff happened to it that already gives it really interesting trunk. Mm, okay. Then we can grow branches and through growing a healthy tree, we can stimulate budding that will allow us to shrink it down even further. But um, uh, that tree, again, it might be as old as that 30-foot tall tree, but conditions in the wild would have prevented it from, from developing it that big. So we are kind of looking for naturally stunted uh, or dwarfed or mm. somehow uh, uh, trees with limitations to their growth that produce great character, but in a, in a smaller size. So those are the ones you collect, but mm-hmm. then you, in, in captivity, let's say, uh, you are mimicking those old things. So you're putting stressors on the tree itself to make it kind of age prematurely. Yes, um, and there are certain factors that do that. Uh, so, for example, we'll take a, a, a set of branches that are just going straight up and tubular, and by putting heavy wire, it might be uh, an anodized uh, aluminum, uh, anodizing the color it brown so it's not so visible, or um, annealed copper, annealing uh, being a heat treatment that creates, uh, it softens it. So you can wrap it around a branch, but then when you bend it, um, the wire will hold that branch in position. So you can take a straight branch, and through wiring, you can bend it down to give it weight, and you can put various angles and curves to it to make it look like it has the characteristic of really old branching. But you probably still have to build a finer network of twigs and branches uh, on that structure as you go. So um, what we do in, in when we start with something is we kind of reduce the tree to its basic framework. So after an initial work on a tree, you might not see much more than a trunk line with a few major branches and just foliage on the end. And then by, uh, again, trimming Uh, manipulating the foliage, feeding it well, getting more budding to break, growing that out, getting it to harden up to produce wood instead of uh, soft green tissue. Then you can prune it again and stimulate that cycle again. And uh, pretty soon you have a whole bunch of smaller branches to twigs in there. And again, through wiring, through proper pruning techniques, uh, there's a a way we can directional prune. You You can understand a growth pattern in a tree and just by pruning, you can, you can know exactly where a bud will break and fill out an empty space. So as you learn those techniques, you start building the structures to fill in those spaces, but again, within a proportion you want. So the beauty of bonsai is, is you, can, you can grow a tree anywhere from, from 2 inches to you know, 50 inches tall um, and, and have a lot of the same characteristics. You won't have the same volume of structure in a 2-inch tall tree as you would in a 50-inch tall tree, but you can actually create the same, uh, same thing that will evoke the same response in a viewer. They'll, they'll feel like, gosh, I must be looking at something really old here. Well, so now you're explaining this like an artist. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Now let me let's get controversial. Are you ready to get controversial, Ted? Sure. So let's say you took this. Now you said these are beautiful. You said you can see the life in these things. These are beautiful living works of art. Mm-hmm. Right. So what we're actually doing to a tree is you are adding. You're putting it in a small pot. Uh, these things don't live in small pots. Trees live Correct. in the wild. They live. They have. A, they can have an almost unlimited root system, except by the the competition with the trees around them. Correct. Um, you know, they can go as high as they want for the light, but we're confining them. We're adding stress onto this living organism in order to make it smaller, to make it old. We're prematurely aging it. Um, you're taking copper wire and literally making it bend to your will. Um, it's very akin to taking a wolf and turning it into a dachshund, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, does, does, that, does that aspect bother you, that, that humanity must force its will upon the nature around it? Um, you know, it... it 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 does definitely stroke the ego a lot to know that you have that you know kind of control. It's Machiavellian, <laughs> but it's uh, I guess the way we tend to look at it is uh, uh, if if a parent has a, a child with really crooked teeth, you know mm. they they offer braces and stuff so that they they can go through life with a little more confidence in their smile with straighter teeth. So for us, it's a little more of an aesthetic thing. Um, it's about creating uh, uh, the most beautiful object that we can. Um, the while we we put stresses on trees, and even you know you mentioned growing in a small pot. Well, actually constricting roots is one of the ways that produces a more rugged bark on trees and actually gives it character. So you're right, there is a definite effect. But the truth is, a bonsai tree is probably treated better than any tree in nature. Uh, we don't want our trees to suffer. We want them to be healthy. We want them to produce the kind of growth, the back budding, the regeneration that, that is so essential to keeping them alive over a long period of time. So no, we're, we're right on top of it. If we see a, a pest infestation, if we see a signs of a disease, if we see even environmental conditions that are, are somehow showing up in our plant through discoloration or something, a bonsai person will, will respond pretty quickly because, you know, we've not only invested in time, we might have invested, you know, some substantial funds in that. All right, Ted, so let's talk about some of the guidelines of bonsai. Um, so now, when I was doing a little bit of research, there are a couple things that kind of make bonsai bonsai, um, and that would be you're looking for gravitas, the illusion of mass, you know, like the the idea that that it is bigger than you know through perception that there's a big trunk and it kind of tapers up, like you said, you know, there's uh, you want to miniaturize it, you want asymmetry, it comes into play here, um, you know, having the roots above ground, reducing the leaves, deadwood curvature, like these are all things that kind of go into bonsai. Yep. Um, how would you describe like your perfect bonsai tree? Gosh, um, that's a tough one because um, different species of trees offer so many different uh, uh, features um, or rewards. So, um, you know, on one hand, you have a very stately pine. Um, pines uh, being fairly slow growing, they're the bonsai that take the longest to develop. So when you see a really nice old pine bonsai, you can't help but be impressed because uh, that tree, somebody touched that tree so many times over such a long period of, of, of years. At the same time, you see a juniper collected from the wild with uh, you know masses of, of dead trunk skeleton and that one 
you know, thin little band of tissue just clinging on, um, feeding just a lush, you know, canopy. There, that too, it's, it's, it's a character that, uh, again, it's so different than a pine, you can't really compare. Um, here in Southern California, one of the issues we end up dealing with uh, is, is lack of fall color. You know, when we get into late summer, things start crisping up and turning brown and getting kind of drab. Well, in a bonsai backyard, you can get the full effects of great fall color. There are techniques we can do defoliate uh, during the latter part of the year and get a brand new crop of leaves that then in the fall will just, just turn brilliant reds and oranges and stuff. Um, fruit and flower, too. Um, again, there, there's so much uh, that, that the world of trees offer. It's kind of you know like asking somebody to say, well, who's your favorite child? It's very difficult to do. Now, granted, there are certain trees you have that uh, become more important to you than others. Uh, um, and it can be um, what, it, what it took to get that tree, the struggle of a collect, for example, or having a tree that really goes through some trauma and you've rescued it and it's become a totally different tree, but it, maybe it's a better tree than you ever, ever thought. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of what you're looking for. Um, uh, that, you know, the range is, is pretty infinite. That's, that's the thing about nature is, um, you know, the, 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 the range of expression in nature is really infinite. Um, even the art of bonsai, when you look at, at how it's spread, uh, across all continents now, um, in various areas, what they've found is that, that the trees that grow in that area become the inspiration for their own type of bonsai. Now, the art, the techniques, you know, they're, they're pretty common. Uh, it's, it's got the common root. But we're actually finding that um, uh, people in South Africa do a, a, a distinctive style of bonsai based on, on the kind of trees that grow out on, on the veldt. Um, people, um, you know, in, in China and Southeast Asia and in the tropics grow a much different uh, style of bonsai than, than uh, people in, in northern uh, climates. Um, Europe, um, Germany versus England versus Italy, um, there's so many variations in style. Even in the United States, one of the, the questions that's arisen in, in bonsai recently is, is, is there an American style? And really, the, the understanding that we've come to is, is we're so diverse as a country. We have such a range of, of plant material and climate and, and condition that we're actually seeing uh, regional uh, styles uh, evolve a little bit more. So down in the south, um, with bald cypress and some of the tropicals they do, they do a kind of a different bonsai than, than we do in the west, than, than they do up in the... Uh, upper northeast where again they they grow beautiful maples and great fall color and then you have a place like Colorado which uh, is so unique because it's so dry and because of their access to native uh, collected materials almost everybody who starts bonsai there hardly goes to nursery stock it's almost all collected uh, spruces and pines and stuff so there too there's a, there's a, an approach to bonsai that is totally unique to that region of the country. What it really means, though, is that the diversity is uh, just being very inspirational to us all. And, uh, and we're finding that, uh, you know, in the West Coast, we can appreciate a nice old flat-top bald cypress. We can grow them here, and we can learn, 
you know, what from the guys down south, what the characteristics of those really nice old trees are. And, you know, they can learn what the characteristics of more mountain trees. So there's a, a good sharing of information. But it's, um, yeah, again, coming back to what, you know, what's your favorite uh, bonsai gosh, just by that answer, you can tell it's really hard to pin it down. No, that's that's fair. Um, let's talk about them as working, as living things of art. So mm-hmm. they're being, you know, being a piece of art, there are rules that kind of guide what it's supposed to look like. Can you talk about some of those, which would, okay. you know, including, you know, the wires, you're not supposed to see the wires and like, you know, framing, all that stuff. Right. Well, uh, a good bonsai, it is a sculpture. And so all the elements of of great design, classic design, go into a bonsai. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, uh, form and, and balance and, and negative space and uh, harmony and uh, uh, cohesion. I mean, all the elements of design come into play here. Um, there's a lot of painting theory that comes into bonsai. We use, uh, uh, like with deadwood, which is t- oftentimes bleached white or a lighter color, um, we use green foliage usually behind that to pop it out. We do things like that. We're, uh, we use uh, color theory if we've got a, a flowering or fruiting plant or a plant with fall color and we want to highlight, we'll use a color wheel to pick a pot with a complementary color to really make that feature pop. Mm. So, um, you know, all those elements go into it. But the tree itself um, is uh, based on nature and it's based on an asymmetrical triangle. Um, very typically. Um, Now trees, again, can, based on where they're native in the planet, they can be tall and columnar, or they can be very uh, short and very broad. But there still will always be a a general uh, asymmetrical triangle uh, in in its design. Um, In some cases, they they liken that to um, the highest point, your apex represents heaven, Uh, your midpoint of the triangle, which might be a branch coming out on one side of the tree represents man, and then the low point of the triangle, which might be the tip of the very first branch on the other side of the tree, that represents uh, the earth. So in that triangle, you you link um, the elements of nature together. Um, now, when, when we find uh, issues in some of our trees, um, Oh, say if you don't have an interesting taper in the silhouette and the tree starts to look too square or too boxy, um, you lose some of the essential treeness or that quality that, that our brains kind of define as a tree. When we get uh, our trees uh, too developed, we get too much foliage, too much branching, too much twigging, and all of a sudden we can't see into the tree. It just becomes a solid mass. There's an interesting little uh, thing that happens in our brain it says, ah, we're looking at a shrub because we expect to see that, that volume in the tree. When we look at a big tree in nature, even though we might see a, a mass of leaves, when you go under that tree and you look up inside, you can definitely see the empty spaces in there. Uh, one of the challenges in bonsai is how can you put the right amount of empty space in that small tree um, to give it that sense of a, it's, it's really reaching out for light. It's got this big volume um, and do it in a manner that still resembles a tree. Because you can have, you can overpluck a tree, too. You can make it look so spindly, it looks like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree instead of something you'd see in nature. Um, and that's oftentimes when, when beginners get started, a lot of times they, they end up with Charlie Brown trees when they start. 
uh, because the, the enthusiasm is so strong. It's like, oh boy, you just want to work the tree and the minute you look at it and look away and look back, every leaf is off of it and it's like cut back <laughs> and they're excited. But yeah, that's, that's a tough way to, to start a, a tree sometimes. But it's, we, um, again, when we start working, we will invest in finding trunk mass because we want that weight. Um, we will try and initially find an interesting line that has movement, has taper, has segments of growth, you know, so like sections that, that um, uh, look realistic to the tree. Those sections, those segments of growth, as, as you rise along the trunk, they should get smaller diameter and shorter in length. So if you think about a tree, what it is is it's nothing but a series of cylinders of diminishing diameter and length that keep getting stacked on one another. Now, every time that you see a little angle or a little curve or a little bit of movement, your brain, because it's a tree, says, ah, that was a growth spurt. And because it's a tree, it starts thinking, ah, that must have been a growth spurt one year. So every time you see a little bend, a little move, a little fork of a branch, your brain is tallying up years. You can't help it. So if a good bonsai is presented with the right amount of visible um, open space and really good quality structure, you're looking at it, and, and before you know it, you're thinking, gee, that thing must it looks like it's hundreds of years old. And so um, we use some illusion in bonsai, too. Um, uh, for example, when we're designing a tree, um, we try not to create eye stops or little arti points of artificiality. So um, most structures of, of uh, bonsai have alternating branch systems. So you'll have a tree uh, with a branch on the right, then there'll be some space in the trunk, then there'll be a branch on the left, or maybe one in the back. Then there'll be some space on the trunk, smaller, but then on the, on the opposite side again. So what happens is in, in young trees, you can have branches that grow opposite one another. But over time, one of those two branches will have a, a, a struggle. It, it won't have as much available light. One branch will get adequate light. So over the course of maybe 50, 60 years, one of those branches might totally disappear. And so when we work a bonsai, what we're trying to do is we're trying to show a tree that's gone through that competition already. Those branches have already been sloughed away. So when we create this alternating structure, even though that's a, a common pattern for a bonsai, we find that it is actually reflective of really old trees in nature. So one of the ways we learn is, okay, we'll go get rid of bar branches and, and start creating those nice patterns. Um, we expect branches to have a diminishing strength as they rise in the trees. So when we're, when we're picking branches to save off of this mass of tangle, we'll go up the trunk and, and generally we'll say about one-third of the way up the trunk, that's where we expect to see branches start to, to be visible. And so you'll go about a third of the way up and you typically are going to look for your thickest branch coming off the trunk there. Clear everything away from it, that becomes your first branch. Then you go up and look for another branch on the other side of the tree. And again, you try and find one that's a little smaller than the first one, um, but has some space in between and, and you clear all the other garbage between it. And then you, so pretty soon you have a trunk and maybe you've got five or six main branches on it defined. So then you cut those back and start the budding out process. And um, I mentioned uh, typically we like to see about a third of the trunk before we start to see branches. Well, that's a, we call that the rule of thirds. So when you're out in nature and you're looking, walking up to a big tree, you know, 
anywhere from six to 10 feet, that's where your eye kind of lands. And that's oftentimes where the bare part of the trunk is. So when we clear the third of the space around a bonsai, it kind of represents that first six to 10 feet. Well, when we're building a branch too, we will clear the first third of the space around the branch. And so like if we've got a branch coming off of a trunk, if you can imagine, you know, from a trunk out to where a silhouette line would be, if you cut your first branch one third of the way, it'll bud out and you can grow that secondary branch out. Then you cut it and you, it buds again, it grows that out, then you cut that. And by the time you get three or four prunings on them, now you've got a whole network of branching uh, going into finer branching, going into twigs, so that by the time you reach that silhouette line, instead of having these big clunky heavy branches, now it's this fine network of wispy twigs. And that's, again, where the age will be expressed. So we start off with this nice massive power of the trunk, but very typically we have to build all those, those more refined diminishing structures that express the age of a tree. And a good bonsai uh, will have uh, both. So you can go into a nursery and a nurseryman will have a little shrub there and it'll be all pruned up and tons of little twigging, but it'll be a, a pencil-sized little stick on it. So it, it has the age but no power. And yet you can find a big stump, cut every branch off of it, and it has all kinds of power, but it doesn't have age. So usually um, you have to build one or the other. And, and the, what it build are the trunks and the bases. So that's why we collect. That's why we buy nursery stock. We're investing in that part of it because it, we can build the rest of it pretty easily. Right. Um, I mean, it's magic. I mean, you're just describing it's illusion. You know, I mean, it's, in, it is. it's incredible. A lot of it is perception. You know, if, if, if you, you know, as an art form even, we say that, you know, if you tried in a bonsai to put every bit of structure you see as a tree in nature, it would just be a jumbled mess. Um, so we stylize things. We, you know, it's representative. It's a little abstract in that way. But uh, one other little illusion that is really funny is um, we will plant our trees with the trunk leaning forward or, that, or at least the top of the tree leaning forward a little bit. And some people say, oh, you know, that's a little folk, folkism where the tree is kind of bowing as a sign of respect. Well, not really. It, if you lean that trunk forward a little bit, it evokes the same response in a viewer as if you're out looking at a tree in nature and you're looking up at it where it, where it feels like it's towering over you. Well, in a bonsai, when you're looking down even at a tree that's smaller, if it's leaning forward a little bit, you'll evoke the same feeling. If it leans back, It'll, it'll look like it's falling out of the pot. It won't look stable, and it'll be, it'll, it'll be disturbing. It, it'll be uncomfortable. But just that little lean forward, that, that just kind of ties it all together, and it just gives it that little bit of completeness, and, and it seems totally artificial. But, boy, does it work. <laughs> well, you mentioned style. So before we end, let's mm -hmm. talk about some of the, the main styles that people yep. kind of try to attempt to replicate. Okay. Um, the... The Japanese, they, they took uh, an earlier art that the Chinese developed, penching. And the Japanese are the ones who really took this appreciation of old trees from nature and through their observation started defining, well, what are the characteristics of old trees and how can we start uh, uh, putting those into material? And through their observation, they came up with, with five basic styles, and it's all based on trunk attitude. And all other bonsai styles are variations on this. 
And um, so the very first one is the formal upright. In, in the Japanese, it's called chokan, C-H-O-K-K-A-N. And that is like a Western conifer. It's, you know, a sequoia, a, a fir, a, a spruce, where the trunk itself is just a telephone pole. Um, and so it is grown in stable areas, um, but usually in pretty high latitudes. Now, you can have a chokan, a formal upright broadleaf tree, but unlike a conifer, there will always be subtle movement in a broadleaf tree. If nothing else, then the way the branches collar up, um, there'll be a swelling that'll make the trunk look like it has movement, even if it doesn't. Um, the second uh, style is now where there is movement introduced in the trunk, and it's called the informal upright, or moyogi, M-O-Y-O-G-I. And that, um, again, for the word being informal, it actually has a very formal set of rules. And that is that uh, for, for the movement that goes back and forth, left to right, front to back, the crown, the apical point, usually falls right back over the main base of the trunk to give that style very high level of stability. The third style is now the trunk uh, and the crown of the trunk starts moving off to the side. And the third one is slant or shakan, S-H-A-K-K-A-N. And so a lot of trees in Japan are, are shakan. They have offset crowns. But um, the movement is pretty consistent off to one side. Um, and a shakan or a slant can be very subtle or it can be quite severe. Now, if a, if a slant gets so severe where the apex drops below the lip of the pot, then it gets into a cascade or semi-cascade. And the difference between those two is the semi-cascade is more of a lateral style where the trunk comes out, drops below the edge of the pot, but then typically comes up a little bit again and doesn't drop straight down. Mm -hmm. A full cascade, which is Kengai, K-E-N-G-A-I, the semi-cascade being Han, H-A-N, Kengai, the uh, Kengai is full cascade where a lower branch or the trunk immediately upon exiting the pot generally drops vertical. Now, it won't drop straight. It'll move back and forth. It'll move in and out. And oftentimes, the lower apex will be out in a slightly flared position where it is gathering light, but in general, that is a vertical trunk. Now, all other styles and treatments are variations on that. Um, so you have uh, two trees, three tree. You have clump, which is a group of trunks that are all joined in a common base. You have groves and forests. You have uh, a windswept where the direction of the wind is very evident. But you can have a formal upright tree where all the branches on one side are stripped completely bare and all the branches on the other side would represent the protected leeward side of the tree and, and would represent a, a, a tree blown influenced by heavy winds, something maybe at timber line. So all these other styles... Um, with multiple trunks and, and that are all going to be variations out of the one, uh, five uh, basic trunk movements. Well, so that kind of um, that kind of gives you the idea, but there are a million variations on all these a things. A million right? variations, yeah. yes. Um, you know, even once you get in conifer and deciduous, again, the subtleties sure. uh, really uh, uh, come about. But if you, 
if you generally look at, at the trunk attitude, um, it'll, it'll fall under one of those. Most of the trees we work with are, are upright trees. So now, where could someone see all these? Where's the best place to like check these out for the average listener? Well, um, these days there's bonsai everywhere. Um, throughout the United States even, there are more public bonsai collections uh, being installed every day. Um, sculpture gardens uh, throughout the country, arboretums, botanic gardens oftentimes are, are introducing uh, bonsai elements uh, in them. In um, there's also many clubs throughout the country, and many clubs typically have their local shows. So it might be at a local garden center, it might be at a mall, it might be, um, uh, uh, it, it varies so much. But a local club will typically have at least once a year an exhibition. One of the more uh, f- intriguing trends in bonsai in recent years is the increase in winter silhouette shows in the upper Midwest. So we've had a winter silhouette show out on the West Coast for many years where in in, uh, January we're putting our deciduous trees on display in their bare state and the exhibition of a, a deciduous tree with a beautiful fine network of bare twigs is absolutely stunning. Well, here in, you know, so much of the country um, where winter kind of locks folks in, um, they've started introducing these winter silhouette shows, and they are pulling incredible crowds out in the middle of winter. And, and, you know, in blizzard country, people are coming to see these tree exhibitions in January and February, and it's um, in some of the places they're they're reporting that they're some of the biggest crowds they get all throughout the year because people are just hungry. To, to see these trees in midwinter, and they look totally dead, but, you know, they're just sleeping, waiting to get rested up, and waiting for spring to come. That's incredible. Um, well, Ted, I want to thank you so much for taking time out. I mean, this, talking to you and going through, I'm going to put up some videos of your personal collection, some pictures. Great. Um, just going through that whole thing, you really get a sense of how much time and effort it takes to put into these things. I mean, it is it is a slow-moving glacier, you know. I mean, this isn't something you can do overnight. I mean, this is work, so it yeah. looks amazing. But it's a labor of love. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working with uh, living material, I, I can't say enough how powerful an experience that is. Um, and, uh, you know, humans, from the time we first walked upright on this planet, we've had uh, a special relationship with trees. Um, if you think of primitive cultures, how many different primitive cultures on the on the planet uh, explain organization of life through through tree of life myth and stuff like that? There's something very very well connected between humans and trees, and to me, bonsai is is where you get the the ultimate chance to explore that in great depth. Um, it's a great hobby. It's a great art. Um, it's one of those that uh, again it it. Uh, it, it, you do it with great joy because, uh, again, you're working with something uh, living that's going to outlive you, and, and that can't help but have an effect. That's, uh, well, that is a, a perfectly philosophical place to end it. <laughs> that's okay. good stuff. Uh, so, Ted, thank you so much for being on the program. Ah, thanks for having me. This is a, a great pleasure. Love, love to uh, promote the art. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. 
A. Barrientos, with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Barrientos. This episode has incredible examples of all the different styles of bonsai tree from Ted Madsen's personal collection. So check it out on Pinterest.com backslash fascinating noun. If you want to listen to all the great episodes, all backlog, the entire thing is up on fascinatingnouns.com. And at the bottom of the page, you can sign up for the newsletter and get all kinds of sneak peeks. And if you like sneak peeks, you can check out Twitter at Fascinating Noun. And if you want to go and look at all the videos, um, there's a YouTube link at the bottom there. Check it out. And if you want to follow me, Daniel at Daniel J. Glenn is the Twitter handle. And if you want to check out Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn, both of those have all kinds of things from all the different various projects. And of course, if you want to see everything that's going on, go to facebook.com backslash fascinating nouns and you'll find all the stuff there as well as my other projects. And there you go. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.